Okay, I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so today is another episode in my mega series, 20 Years in 20 Podcasts. So this is based on a little bit I did at Worlds last year, where I did 20 minutes of magic, I'm sorry, 20 years of magic in 20 minutes. But I decided that a minute per year was not enough. And so I've decided to dedicate one podcast to each year of Magic's life to sort of talk about what happened that year, to sort of, a little history, a little fill you in on what happened. So I've already done 1993, 94, 95, and 96. Today is 1997. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, well, let's just get started. Uh, not much happened in January of that year, so we're going to start in February. Well, I guess technically in January was the pre-release for Visions, and then in February 3rd was the release of Visions. So Visions was the um, small set to follow Mirage. It was actually designed at the same time as Mirage. So Mirage, uh, known as Menagerie in uh, design, was one of the first sets ever designed. Richard knew that Magic would probably need sets, turned to his playtesters, and had them make sets. One of them made Ice Age, one group made Mirage, one group, or one guy, made uh, Spectral Chaos that would, uh, uh, Invasion would use elements of that later on. Anyway, uh, so Visions came out, and um, Visions is well known for, uh, it was a powerful set. It it introduced uh, what we call Enter the Battlefield creatures, at the time comes in play, um, and it had Uktabi Orangutan and Mana War and Necrotal. It had a few others, but those are the three that sort of drew attention. Um, and really put on the map the idea of you know, spells stapled to creatures and they come into play. Um, and, and the value of that, that you get a spell effect, but then you have a body that remains behind. Uh, it's proven to be a very, very useful tool for R&D and for design. So um, I'm, I'm glad that Visions uh, brought them into the open, and we've used them ever since. Um, okay, February 28th through March 2nd, was Pro Tour LA. That's the second Los Angeles Pro Tour. Um, in it, Tommy Hobie from Finland defeated David Mills from the USA. Although defeated might be the wrong word. They didn't finish. In fact, it was a DQ. The only DQ in finals in Pro Tour history. What happened was, David Mills was used to playing his spells before he tapped his land. Uh, at the time, even though now it is a legal thing, at the time it was illegal. But he was so used to doing it, even though the judges kept warning him and kept upping the warnings, he couldn't stop. And finally, in game four, he was all excited because he drew the card he needed to win the game, and in his excitement, forgot he needed to tap his mana, even though he tapped out, so there's no other way to tap his mana than the way he tapped it. Um, He got DQ'd because the judges had warned him, and it escalated up to uh, DQ. Um, there's a lot of controversy. This is the one where the players kind of, we talked about the players riot. They were not happy it ended in a DQ. There's a lot of, I talked about this in my podcast, behind the scenes there's a lot going on. But anyway, um, uh, that was Pro Tour LA. So the second time, second LA Pro Tour, second time on the boat, um, and Tommy Hovey, although would go on to later win, uh, in 98 he would win another Pro Tour, but uh, in 97 this was his first win. Okay, in, I think it's in March, there was the very first Grand Prix in Amsterdam. Uh, Emmanuel Vernet defeated David Knott. Those are both Frenchmen, by the way. Um, so the interesting thing about, about the GP Amsterdam was originally the very first Grand Prix was going to be in Hong Kong, where the first Invitational happened. But it did not happen. So um, it's anyway, interesting to point out that uh, we thought we were going to do Grand Prix. It, didn't, it took a little while, while to get set up. So it ended up starting in Europe. Europe had the first Grand Prix. Uh, and it was in Amsterdam. 
Also in March, 5th edition came out. So 5th edition is famous for being the largest core set, possibly the largest set, uh, well, the largest set we've ever made. It had over 500 cards. Most likely the largest set we will ever make. Um, I'm not sure why we decided to have such a large set. Uh, I know that Bill Rose and Mike Elliott were the designers. And back then, the designers were the people who would pick which cards would go in the set, and the developers would sort of second set of eyes, and we'd swap. So I was on the development team along with Scaff Elias and Robert Guccera. Um, Fifth is famous for... Probably the, the, the craziest thing Fifth is famous for is reprinting Necropotence. I don't know what we were thinking. Uh, Scaff just really liked Necropotence. Uh, we actually... Development put that in. Designed it up with that in. Yeah, development put in Necropotence. You know what's wrong with this set? Developmentally, it needs Necropotence. Okay. Oops. Uh, then in April... So April 11th through the 13th was Pro Tour Paris, where Mike Long defeated Mark Justice. So that was the very first Pro Tour to ever happen in Europe. Um, it's very funny. I remember when the finals happened that a bunch of the Europeans were worried because uh, the idea of a, a Mike Long, Mark Justice final, they, they weren't sure that was a good final. So I'm like, you got to be kidding me. They're like two of the biggest stars in the game. I mean, it was one of the most star-filled finals we've had in a long... You know, we had... Eventually, there was some more to come, but it was the first really, like, two major names in the finals facing each other. Uh, and Mike Long managed to defeat Mark Justice. Um, the famous story is Mike Long was playing what's called a Prosperous Bloom deck, which is the first real competitive combo deck. Early on, people thought of combo decks as being silly and fun, and then Mike Long showed that, no, 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 they can be competitive. Uh, and the, the big story is Mike Long is playing against Mark Justice... Uh, they were friends. They might have even been rooming together at that event. And um, Mike normally had two Drain Lifes in his deck. That was his kill card. But he sideboarded one of them out. Uh, and he had to discard one of them to get his combo going. And so one of the games, he shows his combo to Mark Justice without actually having the, the kill card in his deck. So he's like, here you go. I have it. And instead of, if Mark Justice had made him walk through the steps he wouldn't have won that game because he couldn't win. But Mark Justice didn't know that and conceded. Uh, and anyway, I believe Long went on to win 3-2. So anyway, um, Long long good at the mind games. Um, also, Mike Long would, interestingly, the week after that, or two weeks after that, April 26th or 27th, uh, in Washington, D.C., he would win Grand Prix D.C. Grand Prix D.C. That's hard to say. Um, and uh, he would be the first person, I believe, to do a back-to-back Pro Tour Grand Prix win. Uh, others would do this, ta- others would do it. I know, um, I know Bob Marr did it after he won Chicago. But anyway, uh, he was on a hot streak, and uh, Long was doing well. Also come out that month was the Micropose game. Uh, it was a game for... Um, the computer in which you had an adventure game and then you would meet people and you would battle and you could win cards. Uh, there were 12 unique cards in the game called the Astral Set that were the first time we'd made cards that weren't printed in paper. Um, okay, that gets us to May. So I'm whipping through the year here. There's, there's a lot. It's interesting as I, as I go along, there's more and more stuff that starts popping up during the year. Okay, so May 3rd to the 5th. Um, I'm not going to talk about all the Grand Prix. I'm just picking a few Grand Prix that I thought were highlights, uh, usually in which there was big finishes. So uh, May 3rd to 5th was Grand Prix Tokyo. I believe that was the first Grand Prix in Asia, the first one obviously in Japan. Um, I was actually at the event, uh, and at it, um, Kenichi Fujita defeated uh, Toshiki Tsukamoto. Those are both very big players in early Japanese. It was a big, big deal at the time. They were way major Japanese players. Um, I think it was the biggest Grand Prix we'd had at the time. It was a huge turnout. Um, I remember that how orderly it was. It's like, 
uh, they would say, okay, everybody sit, and everybody sit, and no one would talk, and it would be very orderly, um, and it was fun, it was fun, I had a great time, it was the first time I was in Japan was at Grand Prix Tokyo, uh, I would later go on to be in Japan many, many times, but that was my first time, uh, okay, later that month, uh, May 30th to June 1st, would be Pro Tour New York, uh, at it, Terry Bohr of Canada would defeat Ivan Stanoff of the Czech Republic. So the Czech Republic, uh, the previous worlds, had come in second, um, and they were proving to be quite the force. The Czech Republic was proving to be um, a very dominant uh, country at the time, and later in the year, uh, another member of the Czech Republic team would uh, do something pretty impressive. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but anyway, Terry Bohr um, is... Uh, was in contention... I'll get to this when I get to the worlds, but uh, he was in contention. Winning here made him... Uh, one of the runners-up for uh, for player of the year. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. I guess we'll get to that when I get to Worlds. Okay, June 9th, the release of Weatherlight. Okay, so let, let, there's a lot that goes into Weatherlight, so let me uh, explain this a little bit. So what happened was Mike Ryan was an editor for Magic. Uh, Mike Ryan was a friend of mine. He and I decided that Magic really needed a, a larger scope of story. And so we pitched uh, a multi-block story that we called the Weatherlight Saga which involved this crew, of this motley crew, and their flying ship, um, and led by the Captain Gerard, and he was going to go rescue Captain Sisse, uh, his mentor who had been kidnapped by the evil Volrath. Um, and so uh, we pitched this idea. We had a little PowerPoint presentation. Uh, they liked it. Um, the two people in charge of Magic Brand at the time, a guy named Joel Mick, who was formerly the head designer, uh, head developer, uh, and a guy named Rick Ahrens. And the two of them were very excited. They said, let's do it. They are so excited that even though we had planned to start in Tempest, they wanted to start in Weatherlight. Uh, and Rick uh, got a whole bunch of artists and created an entire creative team to support this story. Uh, Mark Tadine and Anson Maddox were two of the people uh, that were on the team. Uh, Matthew Wilson was also on the team. Um, anyway, it was, it was a chock fill of, of, of just awesomeness and uh, cool artists. And um, that's a really the first time we kind of built a world. A Tempest would be the first world that got built. And I'll get to Tempest in a sec. But um, anyway, in Weatherlight... Rick was so gung-ho for us to get started, we decided to, even though the set wasn't designed with the story in mind, we kind of retrofit it. So we, it ended up being the story of Gerard gathering together his crew, so it's kind of the preamble to the story. Um, so, you know, Sissé gets abducted on abduction, and you see him going around. They, they have to first go get Gerard, because he's not on the ship at the time. Uh, and, he, and he reluctantly agrees. He's a reluctant hero that had left the ship for his own reasons, because uh, Rafelos died. Is uh, He had two childhood friends named Rafelos and Miri, uh, that they had studied together other Maltani. Uh, and anyway, they had all joined the ship. And after Raffaellos had been killed uh, by um, Mornfriend and Galibrate, who are also in the set, um, he left the ship along with Miri. And anyway, they go back to get him, and then they, they're forced to um, go get Miri, and they, they go to get help. They get, end up getting um, Urtai from Tolaran Academy. Anyway, th- so that was kind of the gathering of the heroes to start the story. Um, Weatherlight, the set, was actually about the graveyard. It was a graveyard set. Um, uh, the Dark had messed around a bit with graveyard, and later Odyssey would mess around the graveyard. But the Weatherlight is the first small set that really had... Uh, I mean, the Dark had it as a minor theme. Weatherlight had it a pretty major theme, if you look at the cards. It, it, there was a lot going on with, with the graveyard. Um, also to come out in June was Portal. So let me explain a little bit about what Portal was. So the previous year, I hadn't talked about this in my 96 thing, we had released a system called ARC, uh, and the idea was the way we thought maybe we could teach people to play Magic was to create a game that's like Magic but simpler. So the ARC system had only three colors, red, blue, and green, 
Uh, and what we did is we put out three versions, two which were licensed version. One was Xena Princess Warrior and one was Hercules. Uh, and then also there was one of our own making called C-23 that was a comic book made by um, Jim Lee. Oh, one of my favorite things in that comic book, by the way, is the, the best friend of the main character it early, early on turns on him. But his best friend, and it becomes the main villain of the whole story. But his name is Nemesis. And I was like, don't befriend a man named Nemesis. It's all, can't you see? Um, anyway, those were a flop. They didn't actually do what we wanted. So Portal was our next attempt to try to teach magic. Um, I guess in 96 we also had done um, the pre-constructed decks, uh, the starters stuff. Um, but anyway, this year we tried to do something called Portal. And we would do three versions of it. This was the first version. The idea of Portal was is simpler magic. It had all five colors, but all it had was lands, sorceries, and creatures. Uh, and all those were simple. There was no instants, no enchantments, no artifacts, no interrupts at the time. No, you know, there was nothing but the basics. Um, and even the creatures mostly had either basic creature abilities or a few common play abilities, but they, they were mostly in play. You know, they mostly were virtual vanillas or French vanillas. It was pretty, pretty simple. Um, Portal, in, 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 in a hindsight, didn't really work out. Uh, although the, the cards... At the time, we didn't let you play the cards in tournaments, which was a mistake. And because we had to change a bunch of things, they weren't quite compatible. You know, they didn't say blocking. They were interrupted. And, you know, the power and toughness had, like, little sword and shield. And there was... We divided the rules text from the flavor text. And, and we changed a bunch of ter- enough terminology that it, did, it wasn't quite usable in magic tournaments. And that proved to be a big problem. That you didn't want to introduce something, and the second they tried to go to the next level, they can't use the cards that they have. Um, so we learned that lesson. Uh, Portal did a lot of things right. It d- definitely taught us a lot about um, how we could... Uh, how m- It made us realize that magic has a lot going on at the simple level, and we, we sh- could embrace that more. Okay, in July was GP Toronto. I bring this up because a major player comes on the scene. This is the first event, major event, won by Brian Kibler, future Pro Tour Hall of Famer. And in it, in the finals, he defeated Eric Lauer, who now is the head developer of Magic. Um, so the interesting I asked Eric Lauer about this, and Eric Lauer's story is that the tournament went late, and they shut down the um, concession stand, and so Eric wasn't able to get any caffeine. And he's like, I lost because I couldn't get any caffeine. So that's Eric's story sticking to it. But anyway, this is Brian Kibler's first major win. Um, Brian Kibler really wouldn't put up most of the numbers to get his Hall of Fame entry until his return. He actually left Magic and came back. At the time, I think he was playing in the juniors on the Pro Tour, and he was definitely a good player, and he was making a name for himself. But this was, this was what first put him on the map. Okay, that summer, uh, we used to have a thing called Arena that would run through stores, and there were seasons for Arena based on the actual seasons of the year. So during the summer season of that year, we introduced a new thing called Vanguard. So what Vanguard were were oversized cards that... Uh, where each one represented a character because the Weatherlight Saga had just started. Uh, series 1 and 2 that came out this year um, were Weatherlight characters. So, you know, Gerard and Sisse and Tongarth and Squee and Hannah and such. So each Vanguard card did three things. It gave you a starting hand size, a starting life si- total, and it gave you an ability you could use. For example, your hand size, maybe instead of seven cards, it's six cards. Or maybe instead of seven cards, it's eight cards. Your life total maybe starts at 15, maybe starts at 25. Um, and your ability, maybe you can tap any color for mana. Maybe your creatures get plus one, plus one. Maybe other creatures have haste. It just gives an ability that you can build around. And the idea was, you know, you're supposed to take one of your Vanguard cards, you know, choose which one you want, and you got, I think, eight. And then you would build your deck around it. And it was a very fun, it was very, very fun. Um, and, uh, 
they would later on the the next invitation, which I believe was in '98, um, we used Vanguard as one of the one of the, the uh, formats. We'll get there. Um, okay. Next in August, uh, from August 13th to the 17th, was 97 Worlds. So what happened at the time was Wizards of the Coast. I've talked previously about how we got into uh, game stores for a while. We made Wizards of the Coast game stores. And a big part of that was providing places to play. Um, I talked about how the previous year, um, Wizards had opened up a tournament center in Wizards to practice and learn about it. Well, in 97, we opened up one in the University District, uh, near the University of Washington. Uh, It was a major store, and the entire basement was for organized play. So we ended up having the World Championship at our tournament center, we also rented some room nearby because they couldn't fit everybody, but um, that, that was where the 97 uh, happened. The winner was Jakob Schlemmer of the Czech Republic, and he defeated Janusz Kuhn, who I believe was from Germany. I, Janusz, I apologize if I got your nationality wrong. I think he's German. Um, anyway, it's very funny because uh, at the time we started shooting for ESPN2. We would uh, shoot and vid- edit the videos and then put them on ESPN2. Um, one of the stories was I was in charge of helping do the videos, and so I was asked who we should do pre-interviews with, and I said, oh, we should definitely preview Jakob. I think he could win. And then he did, and we had the pre-interview, so that's one, one of my few times I, I sort of called it. Um, anyway, uh, in the team event, the U.S. team, which in the first, I think, eight years would win every single team event but one, this is the year they lost. Uh, Justin Gary um, would become the team champion. He would be, win U.S. Nationals this year. Uh, and his team would not pull it out and be the first. Not only didn't they win, they didn't even make it to the finals. The finals was Canada won versus, I think, Finland. If not Finland, it was Sweden. I did not write this down. I believe they played Finland, but if it was Sweden, I apologize, Sweden. I was just for sure a Scandinavian country. Um, and um, the uh, story was, because we, we thought they were going to be on camera, we rushed around and had someone find these American shirts with American flags and got them for them, and they didn't end up even making the finals. Um, on the Canadian team, by the way, was a guy named Mike Donay, which would go on to work for Wizards R&D. Uh, and in fact, there's a number of people in Wizards R&D who were on a winning Nationals team. Um, Aaron Forsyth was on the winning U.S. team in 2000. Um, Matt Place was on the winning team in uh, 96. Zvi Mauschewitz, who uh, was an intern for a while, was on the winning team, I think, in... Two, no, 1999. 90, 99. That's the year that uh, Kai Buddha won, became the world champion. Um, anyway, uh, that world championship was exciting. Uh, I believe, uh, I believe um, uh, Jakob won with a was it five color green. Is that what he's playing? Oh, no, no. It might have been Paul McCabe. Anyway, oh, the uh, pro player of the year that year went to Paul McCabe from Canada, who had won the previous pro tour at uh, um, Dallas. Interesting thing is Terry Bohr, had he not made the mess up of the previous year's Atlanta with the Giovanni Fast Effects, where he lost the match against Darwin Castle and he would have won, would have been Pro Player of the Year had he not made that mistake. Another little bit of trivia is if we did Pro Player of the Year then, like we do now, which means we counted Grand Prix, because at the time Grand Prix were not counted, but if you had counted finishing and Grand Prix in, the Pro Player of the Year would not have been Paul McKay, but in fact, Mike Long. Little trivia for you there. Okay. Um, next, on October 4th, was the Tempest pre-release. Uh, the important thing about the pre-release was it was the first time we ever had a pre-release card. Uh, the card was Dirt Cow Worm, a big green creature. Um, and that was the first time um, we had done a pre-release card. And um, 
It was... Uh, now we now do that. Also, Tempest was the first time we did pre-constructed decks. So um, Tempest had a bunch of firsts to it. So before that, other than the one um, beginner product we had made, where we had decks that people could like play their cards in order, other than those two decks, we had never really done pre-constructed uh, material before. We're like, you just buy a deck and play it. Especially one that had more advanced themes that were seen in the set. Um, so October 13th, Tempest came out. So Tempest was my baby. Um, I, I mean, first of all, it was my first design. So you, you always remember your first. But also, I was super, super involved. So not only was I leading the design, but I was in charge of the story that was really making its debut in Tempest. Uh, the idea, I mean, I was technically Weatherlight was the beginning, but the, the real story started in Tempest. Um, and the interesting thing about it was that uh, the philosophy at the time was to try to show as much of the story on cards. And so the characters showed constantly on cards, a lot of scenes. Um, if you ever saw the Duelist, we, we sort of did a... Um, we took all the art that's from the cards and made a storyboard to show you in order what happens in the story because all the story points were shown, or most of the story points were shown in, in, it, in it. I was very, very proud of that. Um, obviously, in 98, I would be taken off the story. That's 98. Um, anyway... Um, but uh, Tempest came out. It was went to rave reviews. People really, really liked Tempest. Um, I, I was excited. Uh, Tempest was... The design team of Tempest was myself, Mike Elliott, uh, Richard Garfield, and Charlie Catino. Uh, Mike Elliott and I would go on to be the major designers for the next six, seven years. Uh, and both of us got our start in Tempest. So really, it was a changing in the guard a little bit for design that Mike and I went from being thought of as being developers to thought of as being designers. Uh, and Mike and I or Bill would lead the large set for the next eight, nine years. Um, it wasn't until uh, Time Spiral where... Oh, no, Chems Kamigawa. In Chems Kamigawa, Brian Tinsman, with, with the first time someone that wasn't me, Bill, or Mike would uh, lead a large set. Um, uh, anything else? I mean, Tempest introduced, obviously, uh, buyback. It had Shadow. Uh, it had Lissids. It had... Uh, uh, slivers, which were going to be very popular. It introduced the Kindle mechanic. Uh, introduced spikes that would show up later. I mean, there was one spike drone. This, the mechanic would show up a lot more later in um, Stronghold. Uh, but anyway, it was definitely... Um, it, it, I think it did a lot to sort of show how you can mix flavor with uh, design. We would move away from that for a little while, but it, it, it was a set where, where there's things were very entwined. Um, I mean, we now learned a lot since then, and I, I feel like the elements of the story were there, but also the, the emotional content was not as strong uh, in retrospect as I, I now would have built in. Um, but anyway, it definitely was... It was one At the time, it was a major stakeholder. If you, if you talk about sets that really made a major impact and changed things, I think Tempest is one of the major sets. Uh, and I'm very, very proud to have been responsible for a lot of it. And, and so and I'm very proud of Proud Papa. Okay, in December... December 5th through 7th was Pro Tour Mites. Uh, that is in Germany. It's near, I think, Cologne, I think. Um, anyway, Mites, Germany. We actually had a Pro Tour in a castle. Uh, literally, it was in a castle. Um, it was very cool. And the winner, uh, Matt Place, would defeat Stephen Omoni Schwartz. So Matt Place would go on to be uh, one of my favorite developers of all time in R&D. Um, and Stephen would go on to be a Hall of Famer who uh, got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And um, so Matt, by the way, the reason Matt never made in the Hall of Fame, I mean, I'm not sure he would have, or not, based on his merit, but was uh, when he quit to join R&D, he only had 97 pro points, and the cutoff for a long, long time was 100. 
And we used to joke if only R&D gave, like, experienced pro points. Like, every year you got a pro point that Matt would be on the ballot. Um, Matt, by the way, is an awesome guy, and uh, I, I miss him. Uh, he was a, uh, both a good friend and an awesome developer. So um, he's gone on to do other things, uh, but I do miss him. Uh, so the Protor Mites was a Rochester. It was Tempest Rochester. Uh, for those that might not know their, their, their history of magic formats, Rochester Draft was a format where you would take a, da- uh, a pack, open it up, lay out all the cards, then the first person would pick a card, the second person would pick a card, all the way to the eighth person, then the eighth person would pick a second card, then the seventh, then the sixth, and the fifth, and it would snake back. Um, and so out of every pack, uh, at the time there were 15 cards, I mean, there weren't the land in the 15th slot, so everybody but the first person picked would get two cards, and the person who picked first would get one card. Uh, and you would do it so everybody got an equal number of packs to draft from. Uh, and there were three packs per person drafted. Um, originally, we thought Rochester was going to be the way, like, it was going to be the, the limited format, because we felt there was so much more skill testing. Uh, that ended up actually kind of biting it in the butt, which was, um, it was so skill testing, there was so much open information, that it made people feel bad, because people could see them making mistakes more openly. And Booster Draft hides your mistakes a little more, so it's a little as obvious if you do something dumb, where in Rochester, if you just make a bad pick, everybody saw it, and then... Uh, people in, I mean, in the Pro Tour it wasn't a problem, but in normal stores, uh, people shied away from that. Um, it, it, it's important, by the way, in game design to let people uh, hide their mistakes to a certain extent. That, um, you know, when you have to deal with other people, uh, being embarrassed and stuff like that really does come out and can affect how people learn and play games. That's why, by the way, I think Duels and Planeswalkers uh, does such a good job, because you can learn by yourself and not have be judged until you know what you're doing. Um, the other reason Rochester Draft got dropped... Um, was the time it took to run it. It's a long... You had to open up each pack at a time, so each pack was done separately. Where in Booster Draft, eight packs are open at the same time, so essentially you're drafting eight, eight packs at a shot, so you're only drafting three packs in that regard. Where in Rochester, you were drafting all 18 packs. Um, not 18 packs, 24 packs. Eight times three. Math is not my friend. Uh, so, um, anyway... That, my friends, uh, kind of wraps up 1997. Uh, it was definitely a very interesting year. Um, I think what happened was that we were starting to get our groove on. Um, I feel like um, Mirage, the previous year, was us starting up the block model. And I think Tempest was us really sort of hammering home what we could do. We were really telling the story in a, in a much bigger way. We were doing pre-constructed decks, and we were doing things like Vanguard, and um, the Pro Tour was up and running smooth. Uh, you know, we had the, the Grand Prix started. I mean, really, 97 was a year we, 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 I think we were starting to get a groove on, and as a company, really starting to hit our stride. And, and a lot of the early years had a lot of hiccups. And, and 97 was the first year without major hiccups. Like, nothing horrible went wrong in that year. We didn't overprint something or, or have printing errors. Or, you know, this was a year where everything went, kind of went pretty smoothly. And, and like I said, there was a lot going on. I'm just listening to all the stuff I've reading off in the last half hour. It was a busy, chock-full year. Um, you know, we had, you know, like I said, you know, we had Visions and Weatherlight and Tempest. We had 5th Edition. We had Portal. Um, we had lots of Grand Prix, a whole bunch of Pro Tours. You know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a fun year. Um, and the thing that, to me that's interesting, uh, one of the things I always remember of 1997 was uh, I was still single at the time, and I traveled a lot. I traveled a lot. Like, I, I t- talked about being at, at the Grand Prix for Tokyo. I was at, uh, I think that year I went to Korean Nationals, uh, and I went to all the Pro Tours all around the world, and 
Uh, it was fun. That was my, my phase where I was just constantly traveling and seeing magic and seeing people all around the world. And, um, and, and I also want to point out, like, this was the first year we had a European Grand... Uh, sorry. Both a European Grand Prix and a European Pro Tour. Um, it's the first time we, you know, had there was a Grand Prix in Tokyo. You're starting to see the international part of the game. That magic was starting to spread and starting to become a real part internationally. Worlds that year had a real good turnout. I, don't, I didn't write down how many teams, but it was a record, obviously. And I, I believe there was, like... 40 teams maybe represented my memory. Um, so anyway, it was Magic was becoming a global game. The, the, the cards were being printed in other languages. Uh, I believe that 90, by 98, uh, Magic was in French and in German and in Spanish and in Portuguese. Uh, it was in Korean. It was in Japanese. I don't think it was yet in Chinese. Um, you know, it was definitely, it was starting to become a real, true international phenomenon. Um, and anyway, it was a fun, fun year, and uh, I remember it fondly. But anyway, I'm now, now at work, and so I had a great time sharing with you all the awesomeness of 1997. Uh, look forward for future podcasts, not, not the next one necessarily, but uh, where I will be talking about other years, like 98 and 97. So anyway, as much as I love talking about magic, even more, I love making magic. So it's time for me to go. Talk to you next time, guys.